the more I talk about this inside outside and the more I talk to companies about this particular process, the more I think it's the wave of the future if it's not already a wave. All these technologies are hitting at the same time. All these new business models, all these new access to markets are changing dramatically how you're going to be able to do it. So the, the chances of you having enough resources internally and the smartest people in the room to do it all yourself, it's probably most of the companies out there are not going to have that. And so if you're not going to have that all internally, what can you do to help speed up that learning or give you better options. And my feeling is that peeling off or having some of that outside look gives you a better chance to actually keep your inside moving faster and, and better. Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. My name is Brian Ardinger, your host. And as always, we have another amazing guest to showcase all about the world of innovation. Today's guest is Douglas Ferguson. Douglas is the founder of Voltage Control. Voltage Control does a lot of different things, but they focus a lot on design sprints and helping companies and new products get up and launched. So Douglas, welcome to the show. And the, and the first thing I want to talk about is why don't you give the audience a little bit of background on how you got involved in this whole innovation space? Always been very curious and in how things work. And, and you know, that led me into you know, taking all sorts of things apart and putting them back together as a young kid. And that ended up getting into to software. And at a young age, pretty much my first job out of school I was working at a company called Cormetrics, and a company called Omniture came along and just ate us for lunch. You know, we didn't call it user experience back then. We just referred to it as them having better UI, but they really didn't understand the customer better. And they really put together an interface that spoke to the customer's needs. We had groundbreaking technology and tech was super solid, but didn't matter. And so that really spoke to me and it stuck with me. And as I continued to advance in my career and took on leadership roles, eventually being CTO of startups where I would run engineering, product management, design, I was very focused on how we think about the product as a holistic unit, specifically coupling the business needs with technology limitations and also the customer's needs and concerns. That led me into working with how we may find new opportunities to problems. And so specifically over the last maybe, I don't know, 10 years or so, I've become really infatuated with this notion that ideas are fairly worthless and it's about you know exploring the potential through focused execution and so that's kind of the trajectory that got me to where I am and I guess from my perspective it's been very much from an operator's viewpoint and living inside of startups and now just kind of getting more into consulting and thinking about innovation from a wider perspective. You said you worked with startups now, but you now are working a lot on the corporate side of you know, existing businesses or things along those lines. What are some of the differences that you see building something from scratch for a startup versus building something from scratch in a larger organization? The problem with building from scratch in a larger organization is the, man, there's so many problems. (laughs) (laughs) The one that comes to mind is the desire to standardize 
And I think standards can be, they provide, they get in the way, they're shackles. And the illusion is that, oh, we're going to get, we're going to get benefit from you know, like economies of scale. The issue is that once you start to kick off new projects, it's like, oh, we, we need this component. And it's like, well, we already built it. The issue is it doesn't really do what you need to do. And it requires <laughs> modifications. But then that other group that owns that piece is resource constrained. And so they're not going to make the modifications you need. But then there's this kind of cascade of dependencies that starts to reveal itself. And it's like, wow, we're going to have to wait two years to get this modification to this thing. But it doesn't really become apparent until like a year and a half in because you've just been going through the minutia of like the back and forth debate over resources. When you could have right. just built the, the dang thing instead of <laughs> the, the thing you already had. That's one of the things that I've seen too, where a lot of people don't realize that they can actually do some stuff. You know, when we go in and talk to a company and just show them how some startups move and how they test product, you know, whether it's throwing up a Facebook ad or something like that. A lot of them don't even know that there's tools out there that allow people to do that nowadays. And so they're stuck with the old tools and the old methodologies and the old ways of thinking. Just even that exposure sometimes to new ways or, or new tools opens their eyes so much that they do kick into another gear sometimes. It's almost like portfolio management gone wrong. So they look at, they're like, okay, well, this, this new product we're building needs to have some file storage capability. And okay, well, we've already have a cloud file storage solution so we have to use that like if we don't use that there's going to be consequences right yeah <laughs> and so yeah then it turns out that this the, the the existing system doesn't support doesn't work in the way you need it to work and right. even though there's this massive vision to get there and the thing they don't they don't realize is that they can just build their own version and then unify them later and then it means you get your product to market faster and then get your valuable learnings. And it really is not going to cost that much to build those small pieces that you need. That's a real kind of short-sighted perspective. Also, another issue is that the whole buy versus build mentality. People buying solutions and trying to integrate them and jam them all together. And they have no flexibility to iterate to the customer's needs. And so you look at, like, especially large organizations that aren't necessarily product organizations. Uh, let's take AT&T, for example, right? They're a telecom company. Like, they build giant networks to make sure that our cell phone coverage works well. They don't make product experiences. And so the way that they offer those types of services is that they buy other people's services and take them to market, like or white label them, right? With that level of indirection, there's no way that they're going to provide a superb service because they own the customer relationship. There's no way that information's properly getting back to the people who are empowered to make the changes to those products. So disjointed from where the value was created in the first place. Yeah, and, that, and that, that comes back to complexity theory. You have to disimmediate. You have to get on the ground reality. Otherwise, you don't know what's happening. We have to embrace the fact that we're working in a complex domain. And so we have to constantly probe our environment to understand what's happening. And that's another thing with all this like upfront analysis they typically love to do. It's like it gets out of date. Or they might have misconstrued something because, you know, it's all typed up in some giant document, you know, maybe not as articulate as it should be. Another thing that I see is that they can be resource constrained, especially when it comes to innovative projects or like 10x projects, because the classic innovators dilemma is like, well, I can invest in the team that's delivering me revenues today. 
or I can invest in this thing that might give me revenues in the future at 10x, right? There's there's an awesome framework in liberating structures called EcoCycle, which is a great way to visualize this process. It's like this figure eight and it basically, it moves from this notion that projects and work we do move from birth into maturity and then into creative destruction and then into rebirth. And between maturity and creative destruction is something called the rigidity trap. And it's in between rebirth and birth is called poverty trap. And that poverty trap is exactly where a lot of these big companies' projects sit because what they're doing is that they're starving them of oxygen. They're not giving them the resources they need to proceed. And it may seem ridiculous because they're super well-funded. What if, for example, like it's just a bunch of business analysts and some product managers and you know some VP kind of business stakeholder type folks but there are no designers, there are no engineers. They can do a lot of thinking and analysis, but they're never going to realize any solution unless they outsource it. And there may be political issues at stake that prevent them from doing that. So I definitely see the the lack of resources playing out in a lot of situations. Right. So you live in Austin, you've done work all over the, the United States with design sprints and that and working with different types of companies. Are there particular trends or things that you're seeing in a, being in a tech hub that are different than you've seen outside of, in different areas? Or what are you seeing in Austin that uh, we may not be seeing elsewhere? One thing that's that's really fun that's happening right now is that Josh Baer, the founder of Capital yeah. Foundry, wrote this manifesto about he calls it the Texas Manifesto. And his thesis is that we'll never be another Silicon Valley because they're just leaps and bounds beyond us. But what we have that's unique is that we have four of the top 10 cities very closely located to each other and governed by the same state laws. It just makes a lot of sense from, from a commerce standpoint to be more connected. And so he's been loading up a bus of entrepreneurs and VCs and startups every month and going to Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. So establishing more connections between the, the startups and, and Capital Factory opened up another location in Dallas and we partnered with a location in Houston and a location in San Antonio. And I've already started to see the benefits personally of some of these connections we've been able to start building. And it's been pretty profound. And I mean, literally he loads up the bus, drives to the city. We do epic office hours. The, the mentors will do the epic office hours, which means we just sit at a table for the whole afternoon and just meet like 10 startups, 15 minutes each, you know, it's just like bam, 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 one after the other. And then there's like an ask me anything session. And while the mentors are meeting with startups, the VCs are also meeting with startups and having a pitch event. They usually try to, if they can, couple it with like one of these kind of $100,000 type challenges. That doesn't always happen every month, but it quite often will. I was able to connect with people, start establishing my network in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and actually just had one of my strategists go speak at Disrupt HR, which is a new organization that started in San Antonio. So that's pretty exciting to me. As far as trends, Austin's interesting. There's not a lot of larger organizations. There's a lot of what I would kind of refer to as mid-tier and, and smaller startups. But we're starting to, the Zebra is, we're, I guess the, the, we're kind of going through this transition where we're starting to see some, some organizations mature. We're starting to see more second-time entrepreneurs taking, and third-time entrepreneurs taking more swings at the bat. Oracle just opened up a campus that I think is like 15,000 like salespeople. You kind of mean like the outpost for some of these bigger companies in the Valley and stuff. We'll see where, where things go. You know, there, there is kind of a funding trough 
a lot of times companies will move to the Bay Area so they can get access to the bigger pockets. Another thing we struggle with is the investors not only writing smaller checks, but being super risk adverse. They want to see that you've figured it out. And so, you know, people follow the lean startup methodology very, very well. But if someone's trying to do some super swing for the fences thing that requires a lot of capital and, you know, they've done a validation, but it's still a big risky bet, then probably going to California. Like for instance, data.world went to California for money. And luckily, you know, Brett having done two successful startups in the past, didn't have to move the company there. But there's an awesome database technology out of Austin is going to California for funding. It's looking like the CEO might have to spend half his time, you know, and he might have to be hiring out there. So that's kind of a drag because since they had to go there for the funding and then the VCs want them to move there, just creates a vacuum of talent and the best startups, the ones that need, that are going to be those big home runs. But the, you know, the, the bigger ones that are they're raising more capital and doing some of these more kind of big, bold things, they kind of get sucked out sometimes. So tell me a, a little bit about Voltage Control. If our audience wants to find out a little bit more about how to get in touch with you or the great things you do there, what's the best way to do that? VultureControl.co is my medium publication and website, and I write there every week. I try to make it a blend of innovation profiles, like the one that I'm preparing for you, and my insights on design sprints and other innovation workshops. I try to make it informative and helpful. So that's that's a great way to, to tap in, to, to stay tuned on what I'm up to. Sounds great. Hey, Douglas, thanks for being on the show, and thank you for letting me give you my insights as well. Yeah, of course. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Ardinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.